inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Welcome to Outlook. Today, you're listening to 94.9 Radio Western, or you're listening to us on the podcast platforms. We are here with Outlook, another new episode to finish off the month of June. How's it going, Bri? Oh, not too bad. Recording this one on a Friday, still recording from home. Haven't given one of those updates I don't know in a while, so I just figured it's always worth reminding our listeners that we aren't yet back in the studio, but we will see how the rest of 2021 pans out. And I'm doing all right. Mm-hmm. I'm ready for the weekend here, although if you are listening to this live on the radio, it'll be the beginning of a new week. So, Although Canada mm-hmm. Day is coming up, so I guess that will be a bit of a short week for many. Yes, true. To finish off June here, uh, we wanted to do an episode um, to highlight that June is Deaf Blindness Awareness Month. And today we have a special guest with us. Her name is Penny LeClaire. Hello, Penny. Hello. Thank you for coming on Outlook. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you. So I was thinking back to how I first um, came to know of you. And I just think I started seeing you on the list for the our Canadian Federation of the Blind had like, has like an email list. And sometimes you comment there, and so I'm not sure how, how you came across that uh, in the first place. But um, yeah, then I started noticing that you were talking about uh, that it's Deaf Blind Awareness Month. And then I started following you on Facebook recently, and you've been posting a lot of interesting um, quotes and thoughts uh, from Helen Keller. and. I know a lot of, most of our listeners will have heard of Helen Keller. I always loved Helen Keller quotes, and I've loved her story since I was a girl. But on Outlook, we don't talk a lot about, well, we're starting to talk more about other disability now. And we've had a few people who have um, hearing issues and blindness, uh, but we don't, haven't talked enough about it. So we're looking forward to speaking with you about that today. That's wonderful, because it's... Uh... The label deaf blindness, you know, we have to come to a point where we realize that it's not just two disabilities. When you put the two losses together, you get a whole different type of reality. And depending on how much sight you have and how much hearing you have and what that combination looks like is going to mean that you're going to have to change, especially your communication methods or doing things to make communication better and your traveling is affected. So you put, if you put that together, it really is a different disability. And the sooner people recognize that it is a disability when you put the two together, then you start looking at, it's not just about what blind people do. It's about what do deaf blind people do. Right. It's, That's right. It's- it's different from being blind or being deaf. Deaf blind is sort of its own category. And I don't know how many people are 
who think about that or are necessarily aware of that. So I really think it's important that we talk about this stuff more and Outlook is a great platform. So very happy to have you here today, Penny, to discuss this stuff and living as a, as a deafblind person because it's something we need to talk more about. So, Well, you will get people who, when you start to go through that experience, whether you started as a deaf person and you lost your hearing or you lost your sight, or you were a blind person and you lost your hearing, it, it is devastating because no matter which way you look at it, a deaf person relies on their sight and a blind person relies on their hearing. So when that starts so that you can no longer rely on it to the same degree, there's a lot of discomfort and not fitting in to any one group and the deafblind group the people who identify and and come out if you like as a deafblind person uh they don't tend to do that so they isolate and isolate more and more because they don't have the same capacity to socialize and i think people don't think about that and that is the thing that as long as nobody and nobody is talking, like you said, when there's isolation and communication gets more difficult, then we just don't hear from them, this population of people. And then we, yeah. and then society starts to just, you feel invisible because yeah, they're not, they're not noticing you. So we get that. Yeah. I know what to tell people how to change the way they do things and like you you both have male and female voices i can i can tell you two apart but if it would were were to have been two men i would have had to ask for you to say your first name first because i don't have much ability to distinguish voices uh and so that becomes a reality in group situations where you have to ask people to do that. Uh, I can't understand speech if someone is using their laptop microphone. I can only hear it if you're hearing, using a good microphone, either a good headset or a, a separate microphone. It's just not clear enough. Our voices are quite different, so that's a noticeable difference, the male and female. <laughs> but like you say, more of a subtle sort of difference or just you know, two voices that are both female or both male, they're not yes. that different right. if you can't pick up every little bit. And I hope, I hope you can hear me clearly <laughs> enough. I'm not, um, I'm speak, I'm on speakerphone actually, because it's the only way I can record for this podcast. So hopefully, hopefully I'm still clear enough for you to, to hear oh. or read the transcript. No, that's, um, it is definitely, it's definitely clear. Um, obviously you're using a good quality here. Um, speakerphone because most of them are not <laughs> okay that's good to know yeah cell phones can be most people these days don't even have landlines anymore and the cell phone can be kind of unreliable as far as sound quality and consistency so growing up we didn't we didn't really know anybody who who was deaf we had a grandfather who lost quite a bit of hearing some you know some grandparents later in life but other than that, Brian and I have been blind and we've had each other all these years. But like you said, we rely quite a lot on our hearing. So 
it's it is hard to uh I, I wish that there was more connections between all of us. It's just, it can be hard when you're dealing with, like you said, a group who is blind, relying on hearing as a big sense. And then the other group who, you know, can't always hear things. Then there's a bit of a disconnect between groups of people that we would like to, um, you know, communicate more. It's just, so by emails, definitely not, not a problem when you're writing it, but yeah. But um, let's go back a bit to the past if we are okay to start there sure uh so do you want to tell us a bit penny about uh where you grew up and what your childhood was kind of like i was um originally born in windsor ontario but i moved to british columbia to vancouver when i was uh, uh, two or three somewhere in there uh, so I grew up in Vancouver, and I lived there until I was in my mid-40s. Um, as I grew up, uh, my mother had a hearing loss, and it was a nerve deterioration. So she knew that some of us, or maybe all of us, would have this nerve deterioration because it was prominent and passed on uh, very prominently. So I knew. Uh, I was born totally blind, uh, so I knew this hearing losses that my mom had. I wasn't really aware that it that it that it was going to affect me or that it would be likely because I wasn't aware of it hereditary at all. But I knew to speak up, and I learned how to um, how to make life a little easier for her to make sure I always spoke while I was close to her or facing her, all those things that you you naturally learn when your mother is uh, hard of hearing. And later when I went to school, I always had to sit at the front of the room to hear the teacher. So I was aware my hearing was affected, but I never said anything to my mom or anybody. I just did what, what worked. And that went on um, for a number of years. And although I was asking people to repeat, I didn't want to admit that it was going to be a problem because I couldn't figure out what I was going to do about it. So I just kept struggling until finally one day my mom said to me, Penny, I think you should go get hearing aids. You don't hear what I'm saying. And by then she was almost totally deaf. So, mm. so for her to say that, it just kind of struck me that um, now was, you know, I couldn't avoid it anymore. So hearing aids helped for a while and then they wouldn't work um, because of the hearing loss was significantly with the nerve deterioration. Uh, I... I would record classes in grade 11 and 12 on a cheap tape recorder and take them home and then be able to hear them. Otherwise, I couldn't hear in class probably um, most of what was going on. But that's, my, that's how I um, figured I could function. It worked. I went home and took notes. And so it took me a long time to do any kind of schoolwork because I was recording and going home and listening to the recording and taking notes. Um, and that was my solution. So it, I guess I always came up with solutions myself because I didn't know where else to get them. Uh, and I, if I had told other people and if I had um, asked for help, I probably would have received it. But 
whatever I could figure out to do for myself seemed to work. So it never occurred to me to ask anybody for help. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> and were you in a mainstream mainstream school, or where where did you go to school? I went to Jericho Hill for the to the blind until I was in grade ten, and then I went to uh, Killarney Senior Secondary in Vancouver. So for two years. And I was married young, and so I did not finish grade 12, and I had a son when I was 19. Um, it was a, a, I, I wasn't afraid of that at all. I, <laughs> I, I remember writing a, an article in school. I was asked to write, what would you like to do when you grow up? And I said I wanted to be a mother, and my mother was shocked that I would say that and she said that's an impossible thing you that's not something you can do um so what do you really want to do and I I just insisted I wanted to be a mother that was my uh, so when when reality uh was that I was going to be a mother I was I was pleased um uh, although I didn't know what I was getting into necessarily mm. I did the same kind of thing I've always done I I just create I just figured I would figure the way I would know what to do and everything would be fine. And, and it was, uh, I didn't actually know anybody that had a young child who was totally blind. I met people after I had been a mother and I was about the oldest one and helped other people, but I didn't actually know anybody as I went through that. So it was an, it was an interesting time, but, uh, challenges are things that I I thrive on I like to figure out the puzzle and what to do and and I, I probably rely on myself a little more than it's fair to myself I've learned to ask for for help but I've been so successful at being creative that uh, it's my first go-to okay what do I can think of to do and then uh, if, if that doesn't work then I will try to figure out who who might know <laughs> hmm. I think you make really great points there in the fact that it's it's nobody who becomes a mother or a father in the, in that case knows really what they're getting in themselves into because it's a new experience so I think with that approach that you knew that was what you wanted to do and sure it would take some adapting but everyone adapts and your situation yeah was a little bit different than than someone else's but that doesn't mean that we all don't find ways to adapt if it's something that we really want and if we can be creative enough we can we can find a way and i think that that illustrated that point really well what you what you just discussed there yeah, it's it's one of the things that that people it's a it's a lesson that, that is if you ever learn it, but not everybody does. Uh, some people look to well, what do other people do? And if they can't find that anyone's ever done it, then they think it can't be done. Well, the key is um, to think about well, what if and how could I and and just take yourself out of that situation of not knowing and see what you can do with it. So. For me, it was a natural. No one ever taught me that. I did that my whole life long because I would kept being told that blind, you know, you can't skip rope, you can't do this, you can't do that. Okay, I can't ride a bike, but I can do almost anything else. And I did. So. <laughs> yeah, and I think for 
change for everyone is difficult at some point because change isn't easy. We get used to certain things. Um, but I find definitely some people embrace change more than others. And personally, I think change is, is the most important thing in life because we progress, we learn, we, we make, make this change to be able to continue w with our lives and to be able to grow. And, and some people, it's, it's tough. I get that. But it's, I think it is essential, really, to have, a, have a, a long, successful, happy life is to change and adapt instead of just things being the way they've always been and not, and not accepting any sort of change. Well, if you expect change, then when it comes, you're not as angry right. that it has happened to you because change is change. And, and if something happens, you don't have to like it and you can be angry. But I find people who are, carry the anger around with them longer never expected that life should change. Well, it does. I'm sorry, but it does. And so anything can happen. Um, I had my husband die after 39 years of marriage. And I've, I've lost a significant round of hearing to the point where I lived seven years with, with no ability to hear until I had the cochlear implants. I, I've lived with alcoholic parents who I didn't expect, you know, would have. I had all kinds of changes in my life, and I still consider I've got one of the best lives going uh, just because of, of who I am and, and how I look at life. What about being a young mother uh, or a mother in general surprised you or what were some of the, the, um, the things you discovered that you maybe had to adapt and find other ways of doing things or how was that whole experience for you? Well, and because, because a lot of people around me didn't have a clue about what I was going to do, I kept getting negative feedback about um, I should give the child up for adoption or I should let someone else raise them for the first two years because those are the toughest and you can't see. I had all kinds of people with, with advice I, could, I would have never taken. So the, I guess the first, the first more difficult thing is that I, I never really had somebody cheer me on and say, uh, you know, and give me ideas. So that was difficult. Um, I, I found that my son, I was criticized because I taught him how to read numbers and he could read addresses when we went shopping on houses and we could find where we were going because he could read. And as long as he read one number after the other and he got good at it. So people would say, You're, he's growing up too fast. You shouldn't do that. Well, guess what? He's, he's, he's fine today. He's, he's quite successful and has its own, his own business. Um, I didn't harm him by that, but he took on more responsibilities, yes. But, um, but that didn't hurt him. Uh, so that, that was difficult to always have to uh, stand up for, for what I did for the reasons I was doing it. He helped me in different ways. And other kids never helped their parents possibly, but uh, it, he never seemed to mind. And, um, I, you know, uh, I guess as a, as a mother, um, I, I think I, I do as a blind person the way most people do. You just listen more. And when I could listen to what he was doing and I recognized he was getting too quiet, he must be in trouble. Uh -huh. <laughs> or, you know, you can hear jumping up on, on the bed and you shouldn't be doing that. So when I lost uh, a lot of my hearing, 
uh, I wasn't able to hear what he was doing. So I had to go check him out physically a lot more often to just make sure that he was still okay. Um, I didn't believe in a playpen. I would have made my life easier had I put him in a playpen and said, you know, okay, I know you're safe, but I don't believe in it. And I, I wanted to teach him right from wrong and what he couldn't do and what he could do just by telling him no enough times and um, giving him positive feedback when he behaved for a long period of time. And um, he, he was, he's much like a guide dog, really. You, you give him a treat for being good and you mm-hmm. let them know when they're not. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Children are children are given <laughs> treats all the time for potty training and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. It works. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah, sounds like uh, you guys probably had a lot of fun too. So. Yes, but, but there's a lot of them, like mothers today, who are go through deaf blindness. Um, it really depends on was the I have very supportive husband. Um, my husband was blind, but he had um, partial vision, uh, so he was supportive in in you know assisting with uh, things that he had to do with Michael that I couldn't do because of it, because of my hearing loss, um, and and Michael learned to hand manual, which is the way I communicate when I can't hear if it gets too noisy or when I had no hearing for seven years until I got the cochlear implants. Um, I learned a two-hand manual, uh, which is just a, a, a manual way seconds. to communicate. So um, mm-hmm. he learned that, and my husband learned that, so they they could communicate with me. So that was a, a phase we all had to go through as a family, and we did, but not all families will ad- adapt to that degree where they'll learn a new way to communicate. And maybe some will, and some won't. My direct family, only two of my four members learn and have ever learned the two-hand manual. And some people just believe that they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And so they would go get my husband and tell him to communicate a message to me because, uh, after all, he can, he can do that thing that you communicate and I can't. And so they believe they can't. And to me, that was devastating because I, I, I took it personally. Um, at the time when I was going through that. So there, there's a huge, there's a huge learning curve for a family to adjust along with you and your adjustments. Mm-hmm. And you said you were married 39 years? Yes. Um, to, to, uh, um, he died suddenly of, um, within six weeks of, uh, stomach cancer. Then I went through the, um, dating seasons seen after two years and uh i was i was married on uh may the 4th in 2019 to a person i met through plenty of fish um which is an online um dating thing so um now that that wasn't that was a really interesting process because what i did because i wanted to be safe i would have an intervener that i I regularly used and we would figure out some of my time. If I was going to meet a guy, I would meet in a restaurant that I knew and I knew how to get to the washroom myself. 
in that restaurant. So I'd always use the same restaurant or two different restaurants. And I would meet them and I would have the intervener walk in and she would see his picture on the, on the uh, Plenty of Fish. And, re- and I would let her read, you know, the, the messages. So if he mentioned his age and if he mentioned different things, so she would come up as if she would just come in and we were friends. And if the guy was older or in any way she would had concerns, she would say to me, oh, you're, you know, nice to see you here. Uh, do you have to go to the washroom before I go? Because sometimes I know that's difficult for you. And if she said that, I had to go with her because then she would tell me what her concern was. And if she didn't say that, then she, she saw no warning signs and she would just um, go on her merry way. So that's, <laughs> that's how I handled that one. <laughs> Yeah, I love wow. I love that because it really shows how how thought out and planned that you are and how adaptable and the fact that like you say you're the such an unfortunate situation about your your husband there but then you know not letting that bring you down for the rest of your life and going back and and dating and meeting someone else that really just shows how you change with the time and adapt and do what what you want to do and you don't let other people's opinions or anything stop you. So I think that's just very empowering to see. Well, I, and I don't think anybody who uses intervention as a deafblind person may have thought of that. I thought of it because I wanted to be safe and I wanted a really good, like um, some friends, I didn't want them to know what I was doing online because everybody, the, the people I did tell, they were horrified. Because you could be hurt, you could do this and that. Well, everybody who goes online and does that same risk if they're not careful. For sure. And it depends on depends on what you do. But everybody sees the, the disability first and they get all upset. And so I had to be careful who I told. Uh, and so interveners are outside the family and you can tell them and you, you can utilize your services. And it was totally acceptable for her to be doing that and to be my eyes and ears. That's what she was doing. Hmm. Well, yeah, I, you and I did like a bit of a pre-interview yesterday and this never came up. I didn't think to ask about this. And now that I find out you, you've done this, uh, we definitely, I always mean to talk more about this sort of thing because, um, well, Brian and I have both tried online dating, um, but I definitely have, and I've met, have had relationships from it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you do feel a little vulnerable. But like you say, everybody these days has tried online. Well, a lot of people have tried online dating these days. And you, everybody needs to be careful. They really do. And if, if you see any signs that a person is too anxious to be getting together and they don't want to do emails, they're not worth looking at. They really aren't. So yep. don't, don't let someone rush you in, into uh, being in, in a vulnerable situation. If they don't want to go back with emails to get to know you, well, forget them because uh, they're not worth it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, with online dating, you really need to um, weed through the the all the all the so many profiles up there, and you know you got to find the few that are worth, like you said, sticking sticking it out for. It is, and you also have to look for anything that in your conversations. That's why I liked you know, you know, emails going back and forth because if they lie in their profile, you're going to find out because they're going to slip up. So if, if you give a little bit of time 
you know, five or six or seven times, you know, it doesn't have to be forever whenever you're feeling comfortable. But I used that to try to trip them up. And I did. I found people who told me things. And then afterwards, you know, very discreetly, I would, you know, ask a question or, and they would say something. I go, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't say, well, it's in your profile. I just wouldn't meet with them again. That's all. And uh, yeah. Well, that's true. I did. I did something sort of along that those lines also. That's why I didn't like to rush it either. Yeah, I thought, you know, this is the perfect way. I'm able to use my skills um, with the written word and my, and it was make, it made it easier to meet people. I don't know how you found it, Penny. If you tried any kind of dating before you went right to online or if you didn't, because even online, I, I didn't know, I don't know if you got like quite a lot of um, people who like, so it's like when you apply for a job and the discussion is when should you disclose a disability? Um, did you put it in your profile? Were you very upfront or did you kind of no. keep it? Keep no, it? I didn't put it in my profile because, um, yeah. because it, that, well, first of all, that's not who I am. So I didn't put it in my profile, but I told them about the second time. I wouldn't let it go along very mm -hmm. far at all. So it wasn't because I was afraid of the rejection. I, I just thought, well, it, it doesn't have to be disclosed right away. And, and besides, some um, people can use that on in different ways uh, for your security if they know you're blind and they know your name. So mm -hmm. you have to be careful what you're doing there. So I didn't disclose it, but I would disclose it almost the second and maybe sometimes even the first. And, and sometimes I did get a reaction with people just you know they oh I've never I've never been around a blind person I don't think I'd want to date a blind person and I didn't take it personally because a good person's hard to find mm -hmm. so don't expect you know respect a date for you know and, and have a number of dates the more dates the more possibilities you're going to have that that's going to be the right person because you did wait so uh it's it was uh I, I just read all of the profiles very, very carefully. And I picked ones that had fairly good writing because to me, that's education. And education, usually people are not screwing around with, you know, un, unpleasant trees. Uh, at least, uh, well, that, that doesn't, that's not a sure thing, but you're more likely. Yeah, I think you bring up a very, a very important thing, discussion there about how or when to disclose your disability and everyone has a different opinion on that right and when i when i've had online profiles in the past i have often included that i'm blind but i normally put it sort of at the very end in kind of a quick sort of sentence just i don't mm -hmm. know again it's a, it's a it's a it's an individual decision and it is very personal but it's uh it it's that people should not be afraid of, of rejection you should want to go through a lot of people because the more people you go through, the, the better chances you are of finding the right person. So whether it is that they reject you or you reject them, you've met somebody, uh, you, you've made a connection, what do you do? Let's move on. Um, so if, if, if I wasn't afraid of the rejection at all. I just didn't want to have that in on online um and and uh have too much of a fact and i don't look blind in my picture 
So they, they wouldn't have known from my picture. So that's fine. And being sig- single, I didn't, I didn't, I was afraid of the security reasons why somebody might do something if they knew my name and they knew um, that I was blind. Yeah, that all sounds very smart and wise and thought, thought <laughs> out. And I just, I think that's really something important for our, our listeners to be thinking about. So for anyone who has just tuned in, we're speaking today with Penny LeClaire. We're going to take a quick break now for some promos and we'll be right back with more Outlook on Radio Western. Welcome back. You're listening to Outlook this morning or by podcast on Radio Western and by Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Outlook. I'm here with Brian and Penny LeClaire. And we were talking before the break about online dating, uh, which is always a fun topic, but uh, well, let's move on to some other things in our second half here. Uh, June is Deaf Blindness Awareness Month, so we wanted to talk with Penny about her experience of those things and to get more awareness out here on the show about this. So, uh, Penny, you mentioned hearing aids, you mentioned a cochlear implants, you mentioned um, the sign language you do. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit more about all of those, like sort of your journey with using those tools to help you? Uh, when did you get your cochlear implant and what was that like and how long? And um, I actually saw your post that you wrote recently about uh, June being deaf, deaf Blindness Awareness Month. And you were describing uh, how to do all the vowels on the hand with the fingers uh, using the um, index finger on the thumb, the yeah. the index finger, the middle finger, the ring finger, and the baby finger. And then I was I was able to do the word you, so Y O U. So that's always interesting for people. And I and you do you'd it'd be nice if more people would learn it. And I, you know, I always say that too. <laughs> I always mean that it would be interesting to learn more sign language, and I just haven't. But um, but I don't think we know a lot about that or interveners or any of it. So what do you want people to know about all those sort of things that help you? Well, first of all, the uh, sign languages are only going to be used by people when they lose enough hearing or whether they were born deaf. So as long as you can hear, then you're going to use hearing aids or cochlear implants. But mm. if you can't understand because it's noisy or you can't understand because someone has an accent and you can't pick up what they're saying, you're either going to have to have an intervener do voiceover, which is just repeating everything said, but because they're closer to you and you know their voice, they would be speaking and saying the same thing. Uh, So the persons in the room are going to hear them talking, but that's the only way you would be able to understand the speech of another person by have someone do voiceover. Then if you wanted to learn a sign language, then the intervener would be doing the sign language for when you couldn't understand, whether it was because you were deaf or because you're hearing and it's too noisy or someone's got an accent or someone speaks way too fast and it's a presentation and and a big room. So lots of different reasons why you might not always use sign language. For me, I was born blind with no uh, sign language. 
So a manual way of communicating, I tried to use ASL and feel the ASL, the signs, but I found that I just couldn't get confident enough to, I, I took the first level of sign language and I learned and I could do the signs. But the little bit of difference in what your hands are doing can mean a different phrase or a different word. So I, I learned the stu- British Duhan Manual uh, because it, it's, it's very easy to learn. You just have to practice it. And it's the one person, you've got your hand, your left hand, palm up with fingers spread a little bit. And someone's using their index finger and their hand on your hand in different ways that you pick up the letters, then you can start going faster and faster in a rhythm. And that can carry you to, oh, probably, I could probably do 60 words a minute that way. Um, And then I took that and I made short forms. So I used all the Braille short forms, SHD for should, WD for would, CD for could. and all the ones that made sense to me, then I used all those. And then I incorporated some sign languages that could be done on my hand. So if you take the fist and put it on the hand, so a little finger is on the, on the hand and you turn it clockwise, that's the sign for coffee. Well, I just get them to do that on my own palm. And I've got about 50 words like that that are sign language that can be done on my hand for whole words so that's what I did because I I I do a lot of advocating I I I will go to ministers offices I will go to parliament hill uh, because two hand is very visual and someone's doing it and and you don't often see it people do come up and ask and then once they've come up to ask you because they're curious you've got them and you can do something with that. So I don't mind standing out. I want to stand out because I want those people to come over and talk to me so I can tell them what I want them to know. So mm-hmm. before COVID, I did that. Now with COVID, we're losing all that um, personal interaction. So interveners have a, an important role. And unfortunately, other than Ontario, um, a little bit in Saskatchewan now, a little bit in Alberta, a little bit in BC. So when I talk about a little bit, it, it might be that an intervener would help for maybe 10 hours for the whole month. Mm. Whereas in Ontario, most, most clients can get at least that per week. So uh, you can do very little with very little. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that makes <laughs> me think of sort of like, like blindness where in Canada, it's so different. Some areas you can get instruction, mobility instruction so easily, whereas in other areas it's so hard to get. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so unfortunate because it's something that people need to live a, a complete life. And these services should be more readily available through the government and all of these organizations need to, need to have these services Canada-wide. Um, so I think that's really important. And I also, I really like how you explained the sign language there because it's something I don't know enough about and I would love to learn someday. and. The fact that you took that the approach, but you incorporated your own um, thoughts into it and your own creativity to use the Braille short forms and stuff like that, where 
that really demonstrates again your creativity and the way that you're able to make something individual that works for you specifically. And I think that's that's really uh, really great to see. I think we all need to do that because it's who we are. We've got so much inside us that we know is going to work for us because it's coming from us. You know, it's uh, just dig in there and find out what what you can do. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, then you you did mention cochlear implants in there. What was that like for you? Was it a a, much of a decision? Did it come quickly for you? Um, The process of that? What was it like when it when you when you got it? I didn't. I didn't know anything about cochlear implants. I wore hearing aids for uh, 20 years. And then uh, hearing aids wouldn't help anymore. And all I could hear was environmental sounds, but no, no speech at all. So I lived almost seven years with no ability to do any speech at all. So my husband and my um, son learned to have manual to communicate some of my relatives learned it Mm -hmm. so the only way i got information in bc um in bc because i lived in bc for 20 uh, until i was in my mid-40s and then i moved to ottawa so in bc there was no intervention uh but there was volunteers and i created a volunteer pool of about 30 people in bc and i organized them and worked with volunteers so that I could have what I wanted, but also other people could could have more. But when I moved, nobody continued it, and it fell apart. Um, then I moved to Ottawa. I had intervention because the, the program was already running in Ontario, and at at the time, uh, I was hearing very little. But the interveners were doing the sign language, and I was I was getting more, but I uh, I didn't like speaking because I couldn't hear my own voice. I lost the confidence to speak, and I tried, but I I felt I just I wasn't sounding right, and I I started to isolate myself because I didn't want to to speak. Uh, so I knew I was running into trouble and I had to do something. So, and my husband could see my depression. And so he started looking for something, anything is going to help me. And he came across the cochlear implants. So I went to the Ottawa Civic Hospital and went through a lot of procedures to do with uh, whether you still had a functioning auditory nerve. Because if you, if you don't have a functioning auditory nerve, you can't have this operation. Mm. So what it does is it implants a cochlear implant into your skull, and that is connected to your auditory nerve. So now you're you're totally hearing electronically. There's there's nothing in your ear processing system is bypassed. There's nothing like that left. So for me, every every person's journey with cochlear implants differently. Uh, some people can hear speech. Not well, but they can hear some speech right away. Mm. If for me, I couldn't. Uh, it sounded garbly, and but I could hear voice uh, things in the environment. I could hear bells ringing that I haven't heard in probably twenty years. I c- I could hear raindrops falling 
that I hadn't heard for a long, long time. I could hear birds that I'd almost forgotten what they sounded like. So for me, I was totally excited. I was like a little kid. Um, what's that? What's that noise? And I had to have things kind of explained to me because uh, my memory had lost what it sounded like and it sounded a little differently because it is electronic. So it was like Christmas every day. It, it was a beautiful experience. Uh, and then uh, I was sitting to listening to the CBC News and I was told every time I thought I heard a word just to say it out loud. And my husband would sit there, and if I said a word that was actually being said that was right, he would tap. He mm. tapped me on my on the on my hand. And there was a, a um, the queen had come to Canada or something to do with the queen, and I heard the word queen, and I said it, and it was the first word that I picked up, and I just jumped up and down for joy that I got one word right. And mm. then one day I was sitting there, and all of a sudden I heard CBC say. It's CBC, it's five o'clock. I heard the first sentence that I ever heard in, in so many years was at CBC and it's five o'clock. And I jumped up and I said, it's five o'clock, it's five o'clock. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got my information from the radio. I heard it. So it, uh-huh. was, it was thrilling. So in 2004, I had the first cochlear implant and you're allowed one cochlear implant as adults. And uh that's totally um, paid for. It's a five-hour operation. Um, Vancouver um, St. Paul's Hospital has a cochlear implant. Um, Ontario, Ottawa has one, and Toronto. And I'm not sure about if Alberta has one, but I know of those three. So the, it's a complicated process because they have to make sure that you've got an auditory nerve, that your hearing is, is significantly bad enough that you're not going to miss anything that you've lost. Um, a cochlear implant give you clear speech once you practice and you learn and you continue to work with it. So it took me six months to get 50% of what people were saying. Uh, it took me two years to get up to where I am right now, which is close to 95% given the testing that I've been given. The second implant came in 2006. But it was an advocacy effort because I kept asking for the second and he told me, no, in fact, the clinic wouldn't even fill out the papers. And then I just kept pushing and said, please fill them out. I had doctors recommending that it was safer that I heard from both ears because I couldn't see. Because if you hear from one ear, you have no idea where the sound's coming from. You can't read traffic. You can't, where is a person in a room? You have no idea. So I was the first person in Canada to get two cochlear implants because I kept pushing. Now every single person in in Canada can get two cochlear implants if you're deafblind. And I'm proud of that because I knew it was the right thing to do. And I knew that I wasn't going to stop asking. And I kept pushing safety. And it took me three times to apply before I got the. So it took me two years. And I tried three times and the third time they finally said yes I guess they knew it that she's not going to go away so <laughs> yeah your recent Facebook post said something about that how much time we spend in life actually waiting for things to happen let alone <laughs> not just you know the things that we want to happen actually happening so yeah and that really there illustrates how 
important it is for us to speak up. And I get it that not every blind person or blind, deaf blind person or deaf person or anyone with a disability can do it all the time and keep up with it. And it comes more naturally to some than others. But you demonstrate right there through persistence, you can get things done. But sometimes you just have to really sort of prove to these people that it's something you need to, to, to live your life. And it's, it shouldn't be a, a question. It should just be a, a, a necessity that is already available. So that just seems like such an accomplishment to get that, that second cochlear implant. And again, it's, it's one of those things I've heard that term before, but I never knew exactly what it was. So I've, I'm learning a lot here. So thanks so much for that great summary there. Well, progress is slow and you experience process one little nugget at a time. So if you don't go into it expecting to get what you want, go into it with the reasonings that you can come up with. And if you're told no, just say, well, wait a minute, that's no for now, Mm -hmm. but I don't accept it. So I'm going to try a different way and I'm going to try a different way and I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to get it. Eventually, I will get it. And I've always believed that. I have never in my life advocated for something that I didn't get in one way or another. But I was reasonable. And I only advocated for one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. If you give people too much, they'll turn you off. Right. Right. One thing. It's it's all about balance and, yeah, or being able to pace yourself. And you say one thing at a time and get that done and then move on to the next thing and, and keep at it so that you can get everything that you that you deserve to have as a as a citizen here in, in Canada and in the world and it's just so so important. For anyone who is just tuning in, we're speaking today with Penny LeClaire. We have just over or just under ten minutes actually left on today's show. Uh, you're calling in today, Penny, just for our listeners. You're you're living in Ontario right now. You're in is it Kingston, Ontario? Yes. Kingston, Ontario. So I'm using a headset with a microphone on. It's a Bose headset, so it's a higher quality. And with that, I can hear uh, because it's very quiet. Uh, I would not be able to function with a lot of people talking, only one person talking at a time. And if you turned on music and then we had a conversation, I probably wouldn't be able to understand everything. I might pick up some of what was being said, but not not much at all. So quiet is, is uh, the, the best situation for me. Mm-hmm. I can't go swimming. Uh, I mm. can't do anything uh, that, that requires, because the cochlear implants can't go in water. So that, that's limits that. So I would have to have an intervener or follow the, follow the side of the pool to do laps. Um, uh. and, and then that's how I would function in a pool that I, if I can't get an intervener around because I love to swim. Yeah, I kind of thought with the last few minutes here, it might be nice to talk about a few of the, in, your interests and things that you do. I know you're, you sound like a very outgoing person. Obviously, I, with the pandemic, it's made isolation a little more um, common for people, which might think, make things a little bit diff- more difficult. But I've seen you talk a lot about um, going to the gym and exercising as well as cooking and maybe just anything else that you do for fun, uh, even before the pandemic, when you were able to get out a bit more. If you could just talk a little bit about cooking and exercise and any other activities you enjoy, and then a little bit about some of the ways that you adapt to be able to do those activities. Well, 
Well, I I do a lot of cooking, and I did have a um, a fire in the kitchen uh, about five years ago. But you know, I got over that. I, I, that was very scary. But uh, if you're organized, I just forgot that the plastic bowls on the stove, and uh, I, I completely forgot that. Well, I wasn't aware. I was too close to the stove, I guess, and it fell over, and that's what caused the whole fire. So you know, as careful as you can be, sometimes things will happen that doesn't stop me from cooking but it did for about a month I couldn't stand being in the kitchen because of, of that fire but uh, you know things happen I like to to walk or or um, tandem bike riding is one of my favorite things uh, mm-hmm. to do I, I don't mind the hills uh, I don't mind speed uh, if I'm with a person that I've been with before, I could do a lot more and feel comfortable with it because it does take a little bit of comfort zone because you're doing a dance with someone and you've got to follow them and you have to follow them regardless of how it's feeling. So that's an interesting process to do, but that's something that I, I truly love uh, to do. I'm on um, four boards. I like the process of meetings. I like the process of trying to take um, a corporation or an an organization and seeing what we can improve and how we can improve it. Uh, So I enjoy that, that kind of work, uh, meeting people. Uh, I get to uh, educate about deaf blindness and doing that because most people wouldn't, wouldn't believe that, uh, that, that I would do well. Uh, but it's it's something I really enjoy. Um, you clearly have done well, yeah. So um, June twenty seventh is Helen Keller was Helen Keller's birthday. Um, what does she mean to you, or do you have any favorite quotes by her that really speak to you? Or it, it, she was the person that really uh, I looked at what she did, and she didn't even have technology. The mm. things that Helen Keller did with so little. That, that I knew it was possible. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but because she did, she had she had her teacher with her, which is like an intervener. I didn't have that, but I did have supportive family, and I didn't give up. I never felt like taking my own life, but I did go through a, a heavy depression, and it just took me a year or so to, to get a grip. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and it is, it's, it's hard to believe what it might have been like back then with, yeah, so little compared to what we have now for people to get by with. And, uh, yeah, she had uh, Ann Sullivan with her there. And then when Ann was no longer alive, she had other help, but um, other friends and uh, companions. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, there's so many great quotes, and you've been sharing them all on Facebook this month. And, of course, such a recognizable name, uh, but... Um, as a as a writer, I've always respected her her books and and uh, you're clearly a, a brilliant writer also. So I've been enjoying following your posts. Well, it's it's something I do enjoy writing. I'm I'm I'm, I'm trying to get up the confidence enough to write a book. I I would like to do it. I just have no clue what, how to go about it. Mm. Uh, but I do I do enjoy it, and I want. The one thing in my life I really want to do is just to have everybody know that you can do more than you think you can do. Right. You just don't. You just don't know. So challenge yourself. Find out what you can do. Don't don't ask, "Can I do it?" 
just go out and see, okay, I, I would like to do this. How am I going to do it? And take it from there. Don't, don't take it from that negative point or you're never going to get off your, your, your feet <laughs> and do it. So if I can get any number of people just to feel more about what their own potential is, uh, then your life is so much better because it's, it, it turns into such a positive thing. Yeah, I com- completely agree with that. And I actually, on a recent episode of Outlook, I said that pretty much a very similar thing about, I've heard a lot of, seen a lot on Facebook of people asking as a blind person, can I, or can I do this instead of asking, how can I do this? And I think that's an important distinction that there are, I mean, within reason, but for the most part, there are ways to do everything. You just have to figure out the best way, ask some people if you, if you can, but also work with what you have and work with your strengths and, and make, make it happen the, the way that you, you feel most comfortable doing anything that you well, want to do. Well, and, and I, I, I hear what bothers me most about what I hear is when people try to list all the things blind people can do. Mm. And, that, that is so limiting just because uh, you don't know if another person's done something that means a blind person can't do it. Is that what you're saying when you, when you, when you want to list all these things? So, oh, what, what, what job do you want? Well, show me the list of what blind people do. Mm. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. It's much better that you decide inwardly what would you like to do within reason and then figure out how to do it. I went to Algonquin College. There was no interveners there. There was no help there. I went in and I asked all the interpreters if they would learn two-hand manual and I would teach them over the summer so that I could enroll in massage therapy. I got three people interested because they didn't get full-time hours. But if somebody enrolled in a course, they got $50 an hour which sounds like a lot, but you're not working full days. And I would take cooking courses and sign up for cooking courses and then get them to use a two-hand manual to practice because it, it wasn't a course I had to pass and it wouldn't matter if I didn't understand anything. They got to step in real situations and learn the two-hand. And within the summer, I had fully fast-paced three interveners and it was just my own doing. Nice. Absolutely. It's all so important. But you look at that and a lot of people would have walked away and said, I guess I can't take massage. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, unfortunately, I think we're just about out of time here. This has been such a great discussion and I feel like there's so much more we could cover, but we'd we'd love to have you on again someday in the future, Penny, because I think these, these things are so important and they need to continue to be talked about. So... I hope you had a good time on Outlook here today, and we're really glad that you joined us on the show. Well, thank you very much, and I'm more than happy to answer any questions, so um, feel free at any time, and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Penny. Send us an email, Outlook on RadioWestern at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.